0: Nobody ever thought a machine could be a chess grandmaster.
1: Artificial intelligence, or AI, is defined as systems or machines that mimic human intelligence to perform tasks.
0: Is there a significant gap or chasm that can never be jumped between just raw intelligence and the mind?
2: I think that's the core question. What does it mean to be a person?
3: It's such a human trait. It's such a selfish human trait to look at everything around ourselves and be like, how do we make that more like a human?
2: There is no such thing as a difference between the physical world and the digital world. The digital world is physical.
3: What what the metaverse is trying to do is is trying to say, hey, I have a singular self.
2: Becca is just very illuminating. You have a wonderful gift for explaining.
3: Thank you, John, for pushing the boundaries of of how I think about this this thing well beyond what the technology can do to ultimately what it's going to be. Welcome to
1: the Life of the Mind podcast by the Oak Guild Institute. I'm Kate Whitehead, and in a few minutes, our very own Jake Chaco will continue the second in this two part series on emerging technologies. Becca Carroll, a millennial futurist, and John Ortberg, a baby boomer, psychologist, philosopher, and pastor, will discuss with Jake what drove the need for and the societal implications of artificial intelligence, or AI, and the metaverse. You know, just light, simple topics. If you missed the first episode, I encourage you to go back and learn about Web3 and how to think about it in terms of power and authority. That philosophical conversation was fascinating. So now on to AI and the metaverse. Before we hear from Jake and his guests explaining these technologies and how it relates to the context of personhood, let me define terms and set historical context. Intelligence is the ability to acquire knowledge and skills. Artificial intelligence, or AI, is defined as systems or machines that mimic human intelligence to perform tasks and can iteratively improve themselves based on the information they collect. An extreme example of AI gone awry is the book by Isaac Asimov, called I Robot, also a movie with Will Smith. Since the dawn of time, humans have been making tools to enhance our own physical and mental capabilities to have more control over our surroundings. Think about weapons and plows to get or make food or defend against predators. The interesting thing is that tools such as hammers still require strength and more importantly, developed skill of a human. A nail gun which effectively does the same thing as a hammer but quicker, requires almost no skill and just a bit of strength to use it. That shows an interesting spectrum on tools and their partnership with humans. So how do we think about AI as a tool? Is it enabling human advancement? Is it becoming human? And even if it's possible, do we really want AI to simulate humans given our mixture of goodness and selfishness? of honor and bias? With every major leap in technology comes an even larger societal and cultural shift, not without a few pain points in the reordering and assimilation process. Jake's guests will touch a little on the fear and uncertainty, but also on the philosophical understanding of what it means to be a person and what we should consider as these technologies advance. After AI, our guests also discuss what it means to be human in relation to being in the metaverse. The metaverse is defined as an open, shared, and persistent virtual world that offers access to the 3D virtual spaces, solutions, and environments created by users. The metaverse could be just the next tool of communication and arguably transportation as well. It's a brand new way to connect with others, which is truly a basic human need. The term metaverse was coined by Neal Stephenson for his novel Snow Crash in the 1990s. A more recent example is Ernest Cline's Ready Player One novel about a teenager who plays games and goes to school in a virtual reality world. And If you aren't familiar with either of those, you probably have at least seen or heard of The Matrix, a story about computers imprisoning humanity in a virtual world that looks and feels very real. So a few questions to keep in mind during this episode. Do we become more powerful, or do we become less human with new tools like AI and the metaverse? Do we need to learn from classic science fiction, The Matrix, or iRobot, about risks if we create something we cannot later control? And what does it mean to be a person, or what exactly is personhood? With those questions top of mind, let's hear what Jake, Becca, and John have to say.
0: Thank you, Kate, for that introduction and great commentary. I am Jake Chaco with part two of this episode of the Life of the Mind podcast from the Oak Guild Institute. At OGI, we are in a relentless search for truth via dialogue, contested if needed, but always loving. And now to our episode. And let's move to artificial intelligence, but now uh, let's do that with the notion of we're starting to get into personhood and intelligence uh, is not necessarily or people most people would agree it's not the mind. Um, so if Becca, if you can unpack artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence a little bit, I might jump in a little bit and then we'll get into, what about the mind? And what happens there? Can intelligence ever jump into becoming a mind? So just, just describe the technology very briefly, Becca.
3: I am happy to do my best. I will set context that I am definitely a lot less deep into the technology that underpins AI. Um, and so I'm probably going to get some things wrong. So, But honestly, like I think of AI as AI is basically everything you think a computer can't do until it can. Like all computing is AI until it's boring and it's just computing. So if you had sort of asked someone 60 years ago, hey, if I move something next to a device and I see something move on the screen, is that a robot? They'd be like, oh yeah, that is a robot. That's artificial intelligence. But actually we don't think of using a mouse as artificial intelligence. We think of it as just, it's, you know, it's just using a mouse. It's boring. It happens in the background. It's not interesting. So I think there is a lot of conversation around AI that is specific to this premise you raised it of artificial general intelligence. So how are we creating machines that are similar to humans in the sense that they are not capable of doing a specific task, but they're capable in the same way humans are of both learning from everything they've done in the past and doing tasks that we didn't ask them directly to do. Um, And I think that's, there's a whole bunch of technology and, Both of you are actually probably more expert in the different sort of eras that AI has gone through, but fundamentally, like I think of it that way, it's how are we continually pushing the boundaries of what machines can do and pushing them closer to machines can do what humans can do. And there's a whole bunch of different ways that happens, whether that's machine learning and whether that's, you know, organizations like DeepMind, things like that, or whether that is like a... Shifting of our philosophy of what is the purpose of machines in our lives and how are we as humans expected to interact with them?
0: So before I tee up the question for John, I mean, in some senses, Becca, humans with uh, you know the person, including a mind, actually figured out different ways of doing tasks and created machines. And as they built better machines, the machines became, quote, intelligent. And they could do certain tasks. I mean, nobody ever thought a machine could beat the uh, chess grandmaster, but machines can take on the world's best chess champion. And DeepMind created a machine that can win the, the goal game, which is very complicated. So they're intelligent, however you define intelligent. But you've got machines coming up getting increasingly intelligent. But these machines originally were conceived and created by humans who had minds Um, So the question, I guess, John, is, is there a significant gap or a chasm that can never be jumped between just raw intelligence and the mind and what exactly uh, is a mind, at least a human mind?
2: Lots of that. Again, lots above my pay grade. There's an interesting book that uh, uh, our listeners might want to take a look at, David Galanter, uh, who Time Magazine said uh, was at least 10 years ago, may still be the leading thinker expert on artificial intelligence and is called tides of mind. And he's a theist, interestingly, Jewish thinker. Part of what he argues in the book is that it's actually a very misguided analogy to say that the brain is like a computer and the mind is like software. And, uh, He says that uh, among other reasons, because we are embodied creatures, we experience emotion along with thought. We experience consciousness, and we experience that with our bodies, not just with the brain. The brain is a part of that. And uh, uh, so it is a person that thinks. It's not the brain. And um, it's interesting to me, Jake, that we don't use the phrase artificial wisdom. We use the phrase artificial intelligence. Dallas Willard, I remember, I I never talked to him about this topic, but I remember hearing a talk where he says, a computer can calculate, but a computer is not rational. And rationality is another one of those concepts that seems terribly self-obvious until you force yourself to try to define it. What does it mean to be rational? And it's not simply to be able to perform a calculation. It's not just to be able to multiply 37 times 182, Um, It has some connection with reality and the ability to trace out causal relations. And it seems to be a property of persons. And I think, I think that's the core question is what does it mean to be a person? Uh, Another really helpful book is by a philosopher. He's at Bayon now, Steve Evans called preserving the person. And he says, there's a legacy of thought from the Greco Roman era and the Judeo-Christian framework that recognizes at the core of personhood is a morally accountable being. Someone who has character that's formed not just by their environment or their genes. It's, it's interesting. In social sciences, when you talk about why people do what they do, almost always uh, it's nature versus nurture. Was it genes or was it environment? There's a third force that almost never gets talked about there, which is choice. And when I choose, that's neither my genes nor my environment. That is a third force. It almost never gets talked about in that kind of debate. But there is no coherent view of human life, including something like the justice system. What does it mean to be just except to be fair to people who we treat as free agents? Uh, I was just looking this week, thinking about personhood and a question online around uh, animals. As you may know, there's there's debates about animals and uh, are animals persons. And sometimes in a desire to uh, enhance the treatment of animals, which I think is a very good thing and I think unfortunately the church has often been awful at that. but in, a, in an attempt to uh, enhance that treatment, I think a mistaken step can get made which is to try to argue that animals are persons. And I think at the at, uh, if you look online, if you look at the question of kind of do animals have personalities, uh, lots uh, is being written about that now. In 1990, there were zero studies on that question. By 2020, there were over 900 studies on it. Animals have personalities in the sense that they have individual differences. If you look at a dog, a dog might be shy, might be outgoing, might be timid, uh, might be aggressive. However, you won't find a single study on an animal's character, and uh, I take it that persons have character and that that involves the capacity for rationality uh, to have mind consciousness. Consciousness is another topic which it, it's a very interesting topic. Neuroscientists tend not to want to have a whole lot to do with consciousness. Um, a synapse firing is not consciousness. It's not an idea. So I think a person... Uh, is a conscious being who is who has a capacity for rationality, although, of course, it's not perfect. It's all junked up. And can realistically, appropriately be held morally accountable for their life and their character. And that's at the essence of personhood. That's why we don't put animals on trial. Um, and we don't put computers on trial. And we don't have people marry animals and we don't have people marry computers. A a biblical way of talking about that would be like in Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Well, if a computer was able to trust in the Lord with all its heart, you know, it would be on the road to personhood. Um, So I think that distinction is what's incredibly important and it would be horrible for it to be lost. Now, a second question is, would we ever be able to create an entity, a computer or robot or something that we can't even imagine right now that could become a person? And I I don't know what the answer to that is. I think we're a long way from it right now. Computers are simply becoming incredibly more and more and more sophisticated in the ability that we have to use them and their calculating capacities to perform ever more sophisticated tasks. So they're able to do and do more and more what people do, but they're not getting any closer to personhood. Whether that will ever be able to happen or not, I don't know. It's possible that it could happen that would not diminish the importance of the category of personhood. So whether or not we'd be able to make one is a different question than uh, is the category terribly important and is it one that needs to be observed?
0: Uh, That's great, John. That's a really deep Thoughts from a deep mind, uh, no pun intended to the company. But, and you said a couple of things which will lead us into the, around personhood, which will lead us into our last topic area, the metaverse. I'll just uh, say this. There's so many elements to personhood and thank you for unpacking that, including being embodied with all of these other characteristics of consciousness, rationality, a sense of justice, morality, etc. cetera. Uh, I, I guess whether a machine can ever be built to replicate a person I mean there just seemed to be hints of it I was coming back from Tahoe and Siri told me it's without even asking it's four hours and nine minutes to my house so I was almost suggesting things and you think it's kind of like a person or you think uh, your dog Baxter is kind of like a person but they're not I mean there's a when you start thinking that way a little bit there's still a huge huge gap to personhood as you defined it
3: but I'm still reflecting on, John, though, this thing you said though was just like, it's such a human trait and it's such a selfish human trait to look at everything around ourselves and be like, how do we make that more like a human? Like, how can a pet be more like a human? How can a computer be more like a human instead of just looking at them as individual, valuable things for what they are and not sort of always gauging their usefulness or value based in how close they are to us. It just, it's just, still kind of thinking about that.
1: The Life of the Mind podcast is from the Oak Guild Institute. At OGI, we seek truth from unique experiences and diverse perspectives. Listening and learning may lead to contested dialogue. We believe contested dialogue can still be loving and compassionate between those with opposing viewpoints. Oak Guild Institute is a fledgling organization with a podcast and salon-style conversations, bringing people together in person and online. Please visit oakguild.org, o a k, g u i l d, dot o r g to learn more and get involved.
0: So let's let's move into our our last uh, area for today: the metaverse. Right, we've got companies like Facebook that have renamed themselves Meta. I mean, it's the alternate universe, if you will. You've got. Uh, jack dorsey moved from twitter so he can live in the metaverse he got the the big companies like microsoft and all all talking about the metaverse so becca could you just tell us what the metaverse is and then i want to come back and ask john about the relationship between the metaverse and personhood um okay so
3: the metaverse um so honestly i think this is I mean, all these terms we're talking about are still being defined, but for me, the metaverse is very much a a term that is in in fluid definition. Because at its core, what it's trying to do in many ways is similar to the, or related to the conversation we were having about Web3. It's trying to take these versions of ourselves where we have a digital self and a physical self, where we think of it as, you know, there's a me that interacts on the internet, and then there's a me that's in my day-to-day. And it's trying to bring those two things together. And it uses a number of technologies to do that. You know, virtual reality, I'd argue augmented reality as well. I would say it uses the internet and in coordination as a whole as its mechanism for doing it. But it's trying to say, rather than having two selves, rather than having a digital self and a physical self, and those things being loosely connected, but fundamentally different, what, what the metaverse is trying to do is, is trying to say, hey, I have a singular self. And whether I'm in a digital or a physical space, that singular self, like that's still me. And those selves are very tightly coupled. They're interacting with one another. And so you can kind of think of this in extreme ways as saying like, okay, well, what would it be if, you know, we all just put on our holographic headsets every day and, you know, played tennis on a virtual court and whatever. But ultimately I think of it as this shift from, to your point, John, embodiment as being something that only exists in the physical world to something that exists in the digital world and is tightly coupled with our physical world experience and so I think that goes beyond virtual reality for games I think that is about saying how is there a version of me that exists in all of the spaces that I am in uh, but I think it's also like it's one where a lot of it today looks quite hokey right like it looks like something that you're just doing for fun and I think the the shift that people are making is to say well how do we take it from this like hokey feeling of, oh, wow, I like you know put on a VR headset and did a roller coaster, and now I feel a little bit dizzy, to something that ultimately creates utility for people, like coupling these two selves. How can we make that useful for people and valuable for people? Because we think that we're leaving something on the table by forcing everyone to have two different versions or many different versions of themselves.
0: So uh, l- let me jump into, because this area just is right for ethical, philosophical, even theological questions, uh, for sure, we can augment what we can do as a person, which is the whole person, body, mind, spirit, soul, consciousness. We can augment it. But is there a danger or a potential or a, an unintended consequence where if we, we spend too much time in this digital world, not connected to our embodied self, uh, that we become less human let me just use one example and john you can comment i mean john uh, you're a surfer um and if there is augmented surfing and you could put on a headset and feel all of the sensations and uh, all of your muscular skeletal system would uh take the same actions but that assumes that you learned all of those physically surfing um but if somebody some kid comes up and all he does is meta-surf, uh, would that be the same thing? Is that less of a surfer or we, do you become less, is there a potential of becoming less of a human? Are there other, as a psychologist, are there tendencies for loneliness, et cetera, your comments?
2: Yeah, uh, huge must unpack there. You know, there's a uh, researcher's got a lot of attention, Sherry Turkle from uh, Massachusetts that writes about the loss of empathy uh, that comes with an increased amount of time on social media. You know, uh, jury's out, I suppose, on that one. There, there's, but there's questions about what is the impact of screen time. Um, I think something that's real important to note is there is no such thing. I'll try to find the right way of saying this. As a difference between the physical world and the digital world, the digital world is physical. It's kind of like there was Mona Lisa the person, and there's the painting of Mona Lisa. They're both physical things. You know, the painting is a physical thing. It's just not the Mona Lisa, it's a picture of her. A computer, I'm looking at a computer right now, it's a thing. And uh, if I put something over my eyes that shows pictures, that's physical reality. So we're not leaving physical reality. It's just important to be clear on the nature of physicality and embodiment. We cannot cease to be embodied creatures. What I think we're looking at is the possibility of Uh, kind of like the painting of Mona Lisa isn't Mona Lisa as a person, it's a painting, spending a lot more time dealing with paintings as opposed to dealing with the actual person, Uh, spending a lot more time dealing with human-made representations of creation rather than engaging directly in creation itself. And I do think from a Christian perspective, there is that notion from the book of Genesis on that creation is good. And so there is some sense in which I am made to experience and care for the earth, dirt, roots, plants, berries, birds, ocean. There's a reason why I thrill to that. And there's a goodness in that and a kind of flourishing that comes from it that if we were all like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix, just plugged into The Matrix, having our sensory experiences engaged in representations of creation rather than creation itself, I think there'd be a loss in that and a loss of the uh, sense of dominion that we were given, which is that we are meant to steward. But at the same time, uh, the creation of computers and the capacity to paint and to make videos is also an expression of dominion. So that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Uh, And what that comes down to is yet another question, which is, Um, what is human flourishing and whether we're talking about web three or the Mona Lisa, all of that raises the question of Dallas used to talk about the four basic questions of a worldview. What's real. That's, that's becoming current in a little bit new way. As we talk about Web three, what is real, what's reality. Dallas used to say reality is what you can count on, but getting clear on what's real. And then secondly, what's a good person. And, uh, I take it that democracy itself has always recognized the limits of the political sphere and the requirement of a thoughtful understanding of what is a good person. And I think those are questions that we can't get away with. And everybody's having an education around that. So what's a good person? How do you become a good person? Uh, and what is the good life? And so those questions... Uh, all become really important ones as we think about uh, Web.3. The one other thing I'll say about it, as we were talking about personhood and the worth, all of creation has great worth. Nicholas Walterstorff says, the Er principle of justice is to treat everything according to its worth. And uh, uh, a good person will do that. And that's part of why justice is so important. One of the things that's unique about persons is that they have a unique kind of worth. Kant said that people have dignity, and he defined dignity as that which makes a human being of such a worth that they're irreplaceable. If my computer freezes up and loses it, I will go get another computer, and I'll do it tomorrow, and it won't be a big problem. If something happens to my wife, I will not go to the wife store and get another wife. She is a person... Persons have a worth that makes them irreplaceable. And uh, it's not by accident that B.F. Skinner, who denied the notion of personhood, called his book Beyond Freedom and Dignity. And he believed that science was leading us to a day when we would transcend the notion of personhood and both freedom and dignity would be understood to be illusory categories. And I don't think that's true, but I think that really is uh, a key question
0: that's great and as we kind of wrap up here uh, the the notion of good you mentioned good at least three times in those uh, after what's real and what i get out of what you just said john is there's good in everything uh living in not living but but what is good is different than what is good in human beings or persons uniquely different and, and, and that good is irreplaceable, Whereas some of the other things could be good, but they're replaceable. So that's actually very, very profound.
2: Well, it's not original with me, but, but so I agree with you. I think it is profound. Yeah.
3: Oh, I just like one synthesis I have after thinking about this is as I think about these three technologies, which, you know, we're all self admitted, not experts on, and we think about what they're gonna do for people, which no one really knows the answer to. Fundamentally, to me, they come down to these questions of what is the world, how do we interact with the world, and how is the world evolving to meet our evolving needs? Like, that's kind of like those, these three technologies all seem to push at different questions uh, or or different parts of those questions. And I I do think that we're poised for a change, but I think those questions are, are questions humans have been wrestling with, honestly, from the beginning.
0: That's great, Becca. I mean, in in many senses, that's your uh, a different version of saying question one and four from what John said: what is the world and what's real, and then how do you live in the world? How do you live a good life? And I think what Dallas had in the middle are the the moral questions, if you will. But uh, that's a that's a great synthesis and takeaway. John, any final thoughts from your side?
2: I, I'm just grateful to have been a part of the conversation it gives me lots to think about and to look at going forward so thank you becca it's just very illuminating you have a wonderful gift for explaining so thank you I, I feel like i i know more now than i did an hour ago
3: thank you john for pushing the boundaries of, of how i think about this this thing well beyond what the technology can do to ultimately what it's going to mean
0: you mentioned a lot of books john we'll uh we'll put them together in the show notes. And uh, again, thanks to both of you. I'll just close with uh, a couple of thoughts again from the scriptures. And we, we talked some early on about authority and this is from Joshua 1a. It says, keep this book of the law, AKA authority always in front of you and meditate on it. Um, So if there's good authority, it's always good to reflect on what that authority is saying uh, that would be one takeaway for me personally the other one just having this conversation with you and this is from proverbs walk with the wise and become wise or become wiser so i've had an hour walking with two wise people and so thank you for that i'm a little bit wiser as well so thank you so much
1: Thank you, Jake, Becca, and John. That concludes this two-part series on some of the most exciting new technologies coming our way, the human and societal impacts, and how we should think about them. In such a short time, we took a broad sweep at Web3, AI, and the metaverse and started many threads that could be unwoven and expanded in multiple directions. And we didn't even touch on some of the tangential and possibly more impactful technologies, such as augmented reality, AR, and blockchain. Personally, I love science fiction because it inspires us to think about the possible repercussions of our technological decisions today on the future of humans and society. So I'm honored to have listened to a futurist technologist and a philosopher wrestle with these ideas around authority and personhood. Before we assimilate to this new reality or virtual reality, we recommend some questions for you to ponder as you continue the dialogue. What do you hope for? and fear from computers or software expanding in capabilities? How can we maintain what is most dear to our definition of person and yet enhance human connection and authority? So now let me leave you with a more broad and integral questions from Becca.
3: Fundamentally, to me, they come down to these questions of what is the world? How do we interact with the world? And how is the world evolving, to meet our evolving needs?
1: Thank you for joining the Oak Guild Institute's Life of the Mind podcast. We encourage you, the listener, to share this episode with another and start a dialogue where our curiosity is explored through unique experiences and diverse perspectives. It's always okay to respectfully and lovingly disagree with ideas and interpretations of events you listen to here or get from other sources. To find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit oakgill.org to learn more about our other efforts to deepen and broaden the conversation.